So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet this morning, we welcome you and along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. This will be the last message in 1 Peter for a number of weeks. We had started this a few weeks ago and I wanted to finish it before we moved into a, a series of Christmas messages entitled The Christmas Controversies. And uh, looking forward to that, doing some study in this. Specifically, we'll have, uh, we'll read from text where Jesus was extremely controversial and still is extremely controversial. First Peter 4, reading, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 6, we find these words. Therefore, I'm reading from the New King James. We do have few Bibles. This text is on page 1016. It would benefit you greatly if you will follow along. That version is, is the ESV, the English Standard. This is uh, New King James. Some differences, but not a great deal. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, we started focusing on this passage in a series of messages entitled Ceasing from Sin, and that comes back to verse 1, the lead in there, those that have the mind of Christ and Obviously, he suffered in the flesh, and because of that, he died, and when we die, we cease from sin. But there's an admonition here that while we're living, we're also to cease from sin. Let's remember that. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Teach us what we do not know today. Eliminate our superstition and our conjecture about Christ and cause us, Lord, to understand that during this Christmas season, the babe in the manger will also be our ready judge. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. First slide, if you would, brother. So this is a a slice, if you would, of verses taken uh, that goes all the way back to chapter 2 where we have been focusing on uh, suffering. And, of course, in verse 1, Peter says, Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. And so Peter is writing a, a great deal about or has been writing a great deal about suffering. He will continue basically through uh, the middle portion of chapter 4, addressing that. So we have looked at, in the past few Sundays, Christian armament. It says, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. So
So when we talk about being armed or having Christian armament, we want to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in suffering. We, in verses 1 and 2, Peter says uh, the mind of Christ, we should arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in ceasing from present sin. And then in verse 3, he talks about we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in repeating past sins, the sins of the Gentiles. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at uh, verses 3 and verses 4. Verse 4 is the Christian armament, the mind of Christ in living a strange life. And we are to be, we are a peculiar people, those of us that are born again. And so our lives indeed will be strange to those that do not know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. We're going to finish this this morning and begin, first of all, looking at verse 5, talking about arming ourselves with the mind of Christ who is the ready judge. Now, we don't think much about Jesus being our judge during this time of year, but that is one of the primary purposes that he became incarnate. In fact, Advent concerns the incarnation. So it is pertinent to our understanding that Christ as judge is to comprehend, it was one of the ways that we, that we uh, consider and understand Christ as judge is to comprehend Jesus' awareness of himself as the Son of God. And Jesus was very much aware that he was and is God the Son. He was born as a peasant. And we know that from Luke's record uh, also a portion in, in uh, Matthew's uh, gospel as well. He was reared as a carpenter, and I did a little bit of uh, investigation this week about carpenters during uh, Christ's time, during the Palestine, uh, early first century Palestine. And as it turns out, carpenters were not necessarily poor people. Now, he was born in, the, in, in a in a manger, we're told, or born in Bethlehem in a stable, or apparently a stable, some type of uh, apparatus used for animals. But his father was uh, a carpenter, and carpenters in the Roman time not only dealt with, uh, uh, with uh, constructing buildings and furniture and so many more things out of wood. And by the way, they didn't go to, to uh, uh, Lowe's or go to Home Depot or anywhere else and get their pre-fabricated uh, boards so that they could build a house. They actually had to, to have the, uh, the timber taken down, and then they had to plane the timber and to prepare it by hand. There were often carpenters that expanded beyond carpentry into masonry. They did it together. So just a little background about carpentry in the first century. And Jesus, of course, would have followed his father. And up until the age of 30, when he left that and became a preacher, he was a prophet. And he claimed to be a rabbi. 30 years of age, if you study the book of Leviticus, teaches us that that was the uh, age generally when rabbis began to teach. But beyond that, he claimed to be the Lord of all. A-double-L. The Lord 
of all. Now here is the interesting thing about Jesus. He claimed authority over all by telling them what to believe and do. And this alone stresses his lordship over humanity. Because no mere human being no pastor, no deacon, no Sunday school teacher, no missionary, no president, no human judge, no mere human being can ever exercise lordship over the mind and will of others except Jesus. He did this without any hint of mental imbalance. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, uh, uh, speaks to Christ either being Lord or lunatic. Well, from what we gather from the Gospels and obviously the New Testament epistles, he did it without any hint of mental imbalance. He didn't fly off the handle. God never loses his temper. He believed he was the teacher, capital T, sent from God. And he utilized his authority from Scripture. He quoted Scripture continuously through the Gospels. And he utilized it with power and grace to the, to the point and to the effect that the people said, never has anyone spoken like this man has spoken. And that applies today. He did not hesitate to mightily speak without reluctance. Peter was aware of this, being a disciple of Christ. Next slide, if you would. Christ never spoke timidly. He never spoke diffidently. In other words, he wasn't uh, uh, a quiet individual that kind of shrugged his head and, and uh, was, was overpowered with humility. Now, he was humble. We know that. And he never spoke apologetically. Oh, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. He never said that. He was in absolute control of his faculties at all times. And there's never been a human being that has been absolute control of all of our faculties. And he spoke with quiet, simple confidence. Now understand, this does not mean he never raised his voice. It doesn't mean that at all. When you read the Gospels, you will find that many, many times it says he cried. So he did speak, raising his voice. But his demeanor was always controlled by the Spirit of God. He also stressed his servanthood. Here we have the Lord of all who is servant. In Mark's gospel it says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, 
to be served, rather, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This differs from you and I. For here we have the Lord of all creation and redemption, who humbled himself, as Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If we were to look at John 13, as a matter of fact, let's turn to John 13, because that's a powerful, powerful passage. But we find that Jesus not only was servant to all, but he was servant to those that were closest to him. His friends, his disciples, those that supposedly, as Peter said, we've left all and followed you. So a couple of things here, and I'll read uh, verses, actually verses 1 through 4, and then we'll drop down to verse 13. So this is John's account of the Last Supper. Last Sunday morning we celebrated the Lord's Supper. This is the, the account that John has of <coughs> the uh, Last Supper. And he wrote, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I hope you have that underlined in your Bible. And I hope as believers you understand this morning that Jesus loves us to the end. I hope if you're unsaved this morning, if you're lost and without Jesus, that you understand that Jesus loves you, but there will be an end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and he began to wash the feet of his closest friends. He displayed that servanthood manner. Look at verse 13, if you would. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I'm not only the teacher. You will notice the word teacher there is, uh, is capitalized. Teacher, the teacher, definite article. I am, in John 3, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, and he said, are you not the teacher in Israel? Nicodemus was known to be the most intelligent and professional of the rabbis. And Jesus, in controversy, said, Nicodemus, you're wrong. Aren't you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? How did you become teacher of Israel? So here he says, you call me the teacher. And Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. 
If you know these things, I expect that you know them by now. If I'm the teacher, after three and a half years, you ought to know these things. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do. So he understood his incarnation to mean that he is God the Son on this earth. And as we read in verses 2 through 4, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He had come forth from God. He was going back to God. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and began to show to his disciples and to you and I that even as the teacher, even as the Lord, he came as a servant. Next slide, brother. Now here's the thing. Just as I said before, Jesus controlled with quiet, powerful authority. But that doesn't mean he didn't raise his voice. And the thing here about servant's heart did not counter his authority. He understood that. And he used it. It only heightened his claim to be God. And because he is God, it follows that he will be the judge of the living and of the dead. That's what Peter is writing to those that are scattered abroad here in chapter 4. Now here's the thing. Look at verse 7. Go back to, with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. This passage about judgment, we, we won't, we're not going to exegete, we're not going to interpret verse 7 this morning, but if you would read verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So Peter assumed he had heard Christ preach. The Olivet Discourse talked about his second coming. And Peter assumed that before probably he would be martyred, which would be in just a few months after he wrote First and Second Peter, that his precious Lord would descend from heaven and receive the church back to himself. But it didn't happen. And so for 2,000 years, and we'll, we'll address this in, at the close of the message this morning, but for 2,000 years, Christians have been longing for the return of the Lord. And I hope as a believer in Christ, that you look forward to Christ's return. Now, we need to look forward to Christ's return for those of us that know him as Savior. We need to shudder when Christ returns for those that do not know Christ as Savior. Because he's coming as judge. We don't know nor is it essential to know when Jesus will return. Well, Pastor, all this is going on in Israel and all this is happening again. This has gone on for centuries. 
What I'm saying is this. We're told in the New Testament to be ready for the Lord's return. In such an hour, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said that you think not the Son of Man will return. It will be surprising. And apparently it will be surprising to the church. Are we longing for the Lord's return? Absolutely. But we cannot calculate, we cannot conjure up the time and date of his return, for we do not know. Peter writes in verse 7, the end of all things is near. He will talk about this again in 2 Peter, especially in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Now, in verse 5, when we talk about Christ being a ready judge, Peter has already talked, uh, has already two times spoken of God's judgment. Chapter 1 and verse 17, he refers to God as an impartial judge. I want you to ring, I want that to ring in your ears this morning and settle in your heart. There's not going to be any bias at the great white throne judgment. There's not going to be any bribery at the great white throne judgment. There will be a ready judge. God will be impartial because he's holy. Peter also mentions in chapter 2 and verse 23 that God is a righteous judge. So we can take, we can rest in the, in the truth that God will judge impartially and that God's going to judge righteously for all that God does is righteous. Here he says that Jesus is, a, is ready to judge. And that, that means he's prepared to judge. This is not something that he's going to be that uh, he's going to um, acquiesce and try to deliver to the apostles or deliver to the angels. He's ready to judge. He's prepared to judge. In fact, as we look at, and we'll see this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, as we look at the scripture, we find that Jesus is looking forward to judging. That's quite a bit different from the Jesus that we worship during this time of year, is it not? He's a ready judge. He's a prepared judge. Now, verse 5 that we just read, look back at verse 22 of chapter 3. <coughs> <clears throat> Who, Jesus Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, the judgment is coming. But in matter of fact, in matter of truth, it's already taken place. Judgment took place at Calvary. God the Father judged God the Son at Calvary for my sin. God the Father judged God the Son at Calvary for your sin. That judgment has already taken place. It is not intractable. It will not be 
pulled back. The action will take place when Christ, who is the prepared judge, focuses on all created entities that are made subject to him. And that means everyone and everything. Now, in verse 4, Peter had said that there are those that make light and make fun of us. It's strange the way that we live, and we talked about this, preached about this last Sunday morning. Folk in Peter's day and in our day may haul Christians before judges and demand that then and now we give an account and a reasoned defense, as verse 15 of chapter 3 says, for the hope that is within us. We need to be prepared. As Christ is the prepared judge, his church needs to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Do you have that hope this morning within you in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, the word that is ready, that's found in verse 15, look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 15 for a moment. Let's read that again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Always be ready. It's the very same word that Peter uses in verse 5 of chapter 4. Christ is the ready judge. We're to be ready because Christ is ready. Remember, as we look at verse 5, that they're persecutors those that persecuted the early church. In fact, I've reminded you several times that Peter and his wife would be crucified not too long after he completed 2 Peter. So yes, his persecutors, the ones who judged Peter, the ones who judged Paul, we'll see at the close of the message this morning, the ones who judged James, the brother of John. These very people that judged incorrectly, that dealt an injustice to these and millions of others since, will be judged by the ready judge, the impartial judge, the righteous judge, and there will be no backtalk. When I was a boy, and that's been many, many years ago, you know, dad would, dad and my mother would often tell me to do something. They didn't ask me to do something. They told me to do something. And sometimes I would talk back to them. I learned at a very early age that I didn't want to talk back to my dad. Or I may be finding myself up against the wall someplace. But I would, you know... Mom, sometimes, and all of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have perfect kids, and they've never talked back to you. All God's people said, that's what I thought. Some of you are perfect adults, and you never talk back to anybody either. Christ We have no idea, no idea, 
the authority of God. There are persecutors in that day and the persecutors of ours, those that think it's strange the lifestyle that we live, and they will be judged by an impartial, a righteous, and a prepared judge. He's not going to be looking through his papers to try to see what he can find out on Ernie, find out on you. He's prepared. Next slide, if you would, brother. So verse 5, Peter says, we're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge. Now notice what he says. He's ready, he's prepared to judge the living and the dead. The living and the dead. You and I don't understand that the judgment of God is something that except for us that are born again, those of us that know the Lord Jesus, that judgment was placed on Jesus Christ. But if you do not know Jesus Christ, you abide under the wrath of God today. Living judgment. Today. That word to judge the living is an accounting term. Some of you are accountants. The living, Peter says. Those that were alive in Peter's day, and Peter counted himself in that group. And those already did. Those that have passed on. Each will be judged. And it's estimated that well over 100 billion people have lived on this earth since creation. Each one. Hopefully, the Church of the Living God at the Bema Sea Judgment, I'll give an account for my stewardship in, pre in preparation and, and preaching this message and all the messages that I have done and many, many other things, not just the messages, but many, many other things. And if you know Christ as Savior, you will too. My status was I considered to be strange, as Jesus was strange. That, under grace, will still be judged. And then the horrid and horrible great white throne judgment that exalts Christ as impartial, righteous, and ready. In Romans 3, Paul said, there's coming a time when every mouth will be stopped or every mouth will be gagged and that no one will have a defense. But we don't think that, do we? We live in America. Hey, we got freedom, so we can say whatever we want to. Yeah, we can in some cases. Paul says they're not going to escape judgment before a holy God. They will be without defense. They will have no advocate, and they will have no excuse. Peter declares 
This is the one that's ready to judge, the one who stands at the right hand of God in readiness to judge. And who is that judge? Well, in verse 17 of chapter 1, we've already talked about this. He's one who impartially judged. But there's also, turn with me to John chapter 5. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, but the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of, my, uh, my, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, underline this, but the will of the Father who sent me. Whose desire is it that we be judged? God the Father. Who will be the judge? God the Son. And so we learn from this, and there are other passages as well, that all judgment is committed to Christ. So God the Father will judge them through God the Son. And he's committed. He has turned over all judgment to his Son. So Peter in verse 5, in fact, in the first four, four or five verses, is reminding the Christian strangers, and you and I at Flat Creek, he's reminding us, to remember that our sin killed Jesus. To remember that our sins bring our own death. To remember that we've spent too much time in indulging the flesh in verse 3. To remember that we are pilgrims and strangers to those that blaspheme our Savior. And to remember that all the world will be judged by the Savior, even if he is blasphemed. That doesn't change the judgment, and it doesn't weaken him in the slightest. Now, go back to 1 Peter 4, and let's look at verse 6 and bring this to a close. Next slide, brother. Verse 6 says, for this reason, the reason for the hope and the reason of the gospel, same word found in verse 15 of chapter 3, For reason is the same word found here in verse 6 of chapter 4. For this reason, Peter says, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, 
that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. We need to preach a reasoned, saving gospel. And it's preaching. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Jesus was a preacher. Peter was a preacher. Paul was a preacher. John was a preacher. James was a preacher. We could go on and on. Jude was a preacher. You could go on and on. There have been hundreds of thousands. And we need them today. Preach the reason of a saving gospel. You and I, and I've mentioned this to you before, you and I are the recipients of some man that was moved on by the Spirit of God many years ago to prepare to enter the gospel ministry and then to teach and to preach the Word of God and for us to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called grace. For the gospel, Peter says, has been preached. It's the declared message of the ready judge, Jesus. And Peter says, I want you to understand that the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Those that have heard the gospel and have died. And perhaps martyred. Turn with me to Acts 12. Peter and Paul and most of the authors of the New Testament were martyrs. They gave their life because people found it strange to speak of a teacher who claimed to be Lord of all. Acts 12. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, this is Herod Antipas, Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, it was a a year, maybe a couple of years, two or three years after the crucifixion. So when he had arrested him, Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four uh, squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter says the gospel was preached to some of those that that have died. And the one that came readily to his mind was James. Now what did James do to deserve death? He preached the strange gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached that all who heard, including this Herod, were sinners. 
and deserve death without Jesus. Peter loved James. And he watched as James was killed, was murdered for his faith in Christ. Now what Peter is saying here in verse 6 is, is a marvelous, marvelous statement. He's saying this. The whole overarching idea of these first six verses is this. You and I are under persecution. We're not talking about physical. We're talking about spiritual. We endure unjust treatment. We're under punishment. We may even be under death. But we should be willing to suffer because there is triumph. That's what verse 1 of chapter 4 says. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, James suffered for Christ, Peter suffered for Christ, Paul suffered for Christ, John, it goes on and on and on suffered for Christ in the flesh. Now you have to remember this. In the first century, the death of believers was a problem for the church because they taught the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've seen that in, in chapter 3. We've seen a portion of it here in chapter 5. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a moment. Even Christians themselves were surprised that other believers were dying. And Paul wrote this to the church at Thessalonica in verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. This is a euphemism for dying. Concerning those that have died. Lest you are as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even God, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus, or those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will Rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul adds this, comfort the church with these words. Are you comforted, Flat Creek, with these words? We should be. So believers in the first century, as Peter said in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. I'm waiting for the Lord to come. But he didn't come. And Peter was martyred. Peter reminds the sojourners, and he speaks of this in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm not going to turn there this morning. We'll come back. To, we'll obviously preach through that in the, in the future. But basically he is saying, Listen, there are those, there are scoffers that are saying, where is the promise 
of Jesus come. He had come. So here we are 2,000 years later, the same thing occurs. Where's the promise of his coming? Comfort one another with these words. He is coming. Peter declares Christ the judge was preached and proclaimed to those that had died and they believed. Have you? That's the question this morning. They may kill your body, but your spirit is alive because we have eternal life. So shunning sin in the face of great threats, in the face of persecution and even death is commanded. It's not an option. It's commanded. How do we overcome in Christ that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit with the understanding that we live to God in the spirit? We remember what sin did to Christ, what it's going to do to you and I. I have conducted scores of funerals through the years. Never one time have I conducted a funeral over a person that was not a sinner. I've conducted funerals of little babies that were less than a week old and conducted a funeral here of a dear lady that was 102 years old. But Naria one was not a sinner. What it does to the Christian is it eventually takes our life. Now, thankfully, our sin placed on Calvary, on Jesus, that sin forgiven. But we've not been removed from the presence of sin yet. That's what Paul was writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's what Peter is writing here. And remember what it does to the lost. And remember that God has promised you and I eternal life. We, as children of God, are victorious when we are armed with the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you that you have attributed all judgment to the Son. We know that he will be impartial. We know that he will be righteous. We know that he will be ready. And so, as believers, we are to be impartial. We are to be righteous. And we are to be ready if need be, for our lives to be offered in the worship of Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's one here this morning that does not know your Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would move in their hearts to bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, receive Jesus as Savior. As believers, yeah, we're longing for your return. We don't know when that's going to take place. So we're to be ready. 
for in such an hour as we think not, Son of Man comes. Peter was ready, and yet he was martyred. Remind us of these great truths. Father, have your sweet will in your divine way in the remainder of the service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Edmund Clowney's commentary on 1 Peter, the close of this in verse 6, he, he quotes from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which goes back before the New Testament. And there's a passage in there that says, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an affliction. And they're going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. Although in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. For those of us that know Christ, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. We're going to sing a number this morning, Brother Vance. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, our prayer is that the Spirit of God will move in your heart and your life to bring you to a point of conviction of your sin and that you would call out to Jesus who is a ready Savior. Not only a ready judge, but a ready Savior. Who's not only willing to save you, but can save you. We can't. Jesus can. So we'll sing one verse this morning. If the Lord spoke into your heart, you're not certain that you're saved. You need to make sure of that before you leave here today. And so as we sing, make your way out of the pew. We'll take you to a private prayer room, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here with that assurance. As a child of God, perhaps you know the Lord is Savior. We rejoice with you. Perhaps you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that. Then as we sing, make your way out of the pew. We'll be glad to counsel with you and follow through with that. As a child of God, we, we conjure up a lot of things during this time of year especially about the babe in a manger. But the reason there was a babe in a manger was because there was the adult Jesus. There was need for the incarnation. And that's the way that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God determined for Christ to invade this world. What number, Brother Vance?